Welcome to the newest edition, latest edition of the War on the Rocks podcast. My name's Ryan Evans. I have here uh, Doug Ollivant and David Ucko. Uh, Doug's at the New America Foundation and David's at the College of International Security Affairs at NDU, National Defense University. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank uh, you. We're usually, we're usually at the Jefferson Hotel at the Quill Bar. Uh, today we're slumming it in my luxurious, luxurious apartment, the the man cave at the center of War on the Rocks. Many leather-bound books. Uh, smells of cigars and drinking bourbon and other, other such things. So uh, we're here to talk about counterinsurgency, which is probably, given what's happening in the world with Ukraine, everyone's focused on Ukraine and Russia and NATO, uh, sort of the last thing that on everyone's minds. But uh, it's still a problem that the world is grappling with. I know, Doug, you just came back from Baghdad. Why don't you tell us what you were, what you were up to there? Uh, I went to Baghdad uh, to do some business, but initially at the invitation of the government of Iraq to speak at their first annual counterterrorism conference, uh, in which they're trying to get the international community to both acknowledge and help them with the uh, large-scale invasion of ISIS, the former AQI, um, from the war in Syria. And so they're seeing a lot of blowback from or sort of spillover is probably the better term from what's happening in Syria right now? I think absolutely, although it, it's, it's recursive. I mean, originally ISIS comes from Baghdad, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the AQI emir, moves to northern Syria, declares that he's now ISIS or ISIL or DASH or whatever acronym you prefer, um, and begins to attract a lot of money, a lot of followers, um, is able to set up uh, some fairly comprehensive training camps and transforms what used to be a very decimated AQI into now an extremely capable ISIS, far more capable than the uh, the AQI we saw in 2007 and 8. And what, what were you sort of hearing from, I, I gather you were dealing a lot or interacting a lot with Iraqi military officers and defense officials. What's sort of the mood in Baghdad now in terms of its political future and its own security? Well, the mood in terms of Baghdad hasn't changed that much over the last year. There's still a uh, fairly regular campaign of car bombs, um, both blown up by suicide bombers and left parked to, to blow up remotely, um, that hits Baghdad. Um, but the real concern is out in Anbar, um, where, you, again, you have these ISIS squad-sized units and larger um, that are functioning out there. And they're now first tier. They've been fighting Hezbollah in uh, Syria for the last year, and if they didn't know how to fight before, they certainly do now. Hmm. And so they're just sort of rotating in and out of Iraq and Syria. Uh, what, what are their sort of objectives in Iraq? Obviously probably different from what they're trying to get up to in Syria. Or is it? No, I don't think the, uh, I don't think the goals are entirely different. They are setting up safe havens in western Anbar, creating training camps, and trying to move from Anbar into both Baghdad and pushing south into Karbala. I also went to Karbala for a day, and they're very concerned about blowover from Anbar into Karbala. Hmm. And given the sort of um, Iraqi experience watching Americans conduct counterinsurgency side by side with Iraqi forces, what sort of legacy, coins legacy, would you say in Iraq, and how is it being practiced now? Um, regrettably, I don't think there's a lot of coin legacy. Um, I don't think they have the capacity to conduct the type of comprehensive counterinsurgency campaign um, that we initiated. Um, although, as I like to remind people, it took us three or four years to figure out how to do that as well. And um, perhaps today's Iraqis look more like the, uh, the divisions of 2003 and 2004 uh, that didn't, hadn't figured out how to effectively operate in that environment. All right. And uh, David, you just came out with a book recently with Robert Egnell, a friend of ours, uh, on sort of the British experience of counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as you watch what's going on in Baghdad now, how do you sort of reflect on the legacy of the Western campaign now in Iraq more broadly? Um, well, I mean, it's... it's uh I think for, for many military practitioners in particular, seeing what's happening has of course been very painful and uh, there's a lot of blowback again, politically onto what the current administration vis-a-vis -vis the last one. From my perspective, and the book of course deals with Britain, 
Um, Why don't you tell them the title? Yeah, <laughs> just going to plug out there. Uh, such a bad salesman. It's um, the book being, of course, called Counterinsurgency in Crisis, uh, Britain and the Challenges of Modern Warfare. I think uh, looking at Iraq today, we're looking particularly, well, specifically at one of the great challenges of modern warfare, which is that it doesn't really end. I mean, there's no sort of roll the credits moment where we're in a sense in the business of managing political risk rather than solving political risk. So that moment of transition, which I think has bedeviled us in many other cases, and I know this, you know, there are several RAND reports and other, you know, high cost think tank um, uh, publications devoted to the issue is one we'll continue to grapple with. Central to that issue is how do you train up the local institutions that are going to take over? And that gets us into all sorts of issues that are endemic, really, to, I believe, modern warfare, but in particular, irregular warfare, building for host nation capability, uh, working with host nation security forces, uh, and ensuring that you have uh, sources of leverage even when your footprint is, is uh, rapidly being reduced. And it's clearly in Iraq that could have been done better. Uh, I, I think that's incontestable. But uh, at the same time, of course, I don't want to diminish some of the issues that we dealt with but politically, domestically here in the U.S., but politically, domestically also in, in Iraq, where the presence of U.S. and uh, U.K. forces uh, by 2009, 2010 was beginning to become a political liability. So it's... Um, it's 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 tough to find much solace out of these types of operations. These are, as John Nagel puts it now, uh, was it uh, uncomfortable wars? And I think there's a lot to that. Um, and again, this is something I think we have to get used to. I don't think it's going to get any easier with time. So it's uh, I don't think we should look back upon this as an aberration, rather uh, as a uh, source of many helpful lessons that need to be learned. And you were recently presented this pretty big paper that I think is excellent, mostly because I'm cited in it. But uh on uh, the whole concept of clear-hold-build, which was sort of at the center of, uh, or portrayed as being at the center of FM324, the uh, American counterinsurgency manual. Why don't you tell us a bit about your conclusions? Yeah, so the clear-hold-build work that I've done, research, um, it really grew out of this um, observation that clear-hold-build is a ubiquitous model of counterinsurgency in theory. I mean, any field manual or really any... If you look closely at what even what the Brazilians have tried to do in the favelas or uh, past campaigns, you clear, you hold, you build. It seems so commonsensical. Yet, of course, we also know that the track record of clear hold build leaves much to be desired. So that contradiction spurred me on to to look at you know is this actually a concept or a model or an approach with any great merit, or is this something that we kind of throw at problems and then fail to execute? And of course, I guess maybe unsurprisingly. One of the conclusions is that clearhold build is a nice sort of uh, skeleton or framework, but you always need to sort of fill it with the specifics of the case. It's not a strategy. It's just something that helps you. It's a heuristic device that helps you frame your your approach and sequencing of operations. But I think more interesting than that is um, when looking at expeditionary counterinsurgency, it's interesting that so much that we do in terms of clearhold build is undertaken just by that ourselves. And I think that obscures a critical issue uh, that we've had in Afghanistan, and perhaps to a certain degree, though I think uh, less so in Iraq, that we supplant, we do so much, we throw the whole kitchen sink at the problem because the host nation won't necessarily step up. And then we wonder why we can't, again, transition out of that country uh, without things going quickly awry. So uh, I think one of the key lessons from the, that, this, that comes out from the work is learning again to, to not to do things directly for the people, not to clear for them or provide them security, but really bring the local population in, not just as benefactors, but as participants in the effort. And the same thing goes for the local host nation government, to bring them in as participants rather than as just being uh, patrons that we provide money, leverage and, and power to. Doug, you want to reflect on that, given you authored the Baghdad Security Plan in what year was it, 2005, six? Late 2006. Late 2006. Uh, what are your sort of reflections based on what David's just been talking about? I, I think, obviously, I think there's a lot to that. You know, the, the, the classic quote, you know, better that, you know, the Arabs do it acceptably than you do it perfectly. But I think there's also a tendency on the part of Westerners, probably Americans and the British in particular, to assume that. Everything that we are doing is efficacious, um, 
to tell people there, there are two aspects to American exceptionalism. One is the idea that we can do anything, and the second corollary to that wait, is wait, anything... Wait, 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 wait. I have to stop you right there, Doug. We can't do anything? One, <laughs> we can do anything. And two, that if anything good happens, we must have caused it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's um, there, there can be a, a lot of hubris that comes about, and you know sometimes winning something is just staying around long enough for natural dynamics to take place. Um, I think there's a lot of that that has occurred in, in several of these campaigns, perhaps to the uh, to the benefit in Iraq in 2007, um, to the detriment in, in later Afghanistan. Um, you just wrote a great paper, Dave, on, on El Salvador and, and how that happened. So I, I think there needs to be a dose of humility that there are other things happening in history, in the local population, macro trends, micro trends, in between trends, totally independent of what the intervening power is or is not doing. And that's another, that's another aspect that really resonates with uh, my research on Clear Hole Build, and, and thanks for plugging the El Salvador uh, article that's out it's in the most great piece. Uh, second to last issue of Small Wars and Insurgencies. Uh, we'll link to all this at the bottom of the page, so if you're listening to this, you're already looking at the links plugs that is coming one after the other. Um, and it comes back, the, the point I was trying to make is uh, this idea of ink spots and, and spreading ink across the paper. And it's one of the analogies that I, or metaphors, I guess, that I, I uh, raise in the article, which is, uh, you know, we, we think of ink spreading across a paper, but we don't really think about what's on the paper before that ink has reached it. So we tend to operate with this idea of the, sort of the periphery or the village being a tabula rasa, an empty slate that we can sort of fill with all the wonderful things that Western civilization can bring. And I think, you know, there again, we, we turn a blind eye to so many things that are going on on the ground that have nothing to do with us and that we scarcely understand. And of course, if you scarcely understand what you're doing, then you cannot understand your impact either, which really becomes a problem when you then try to derive lessons of how did it all work out so well or alternatively, how did it all work out so badly for us? I think it's a really, a really important point and certainly reflects uh, what I saw in Helmand where, you know, the campaign plan assumed that we knew who the enemy was and clearly identified the enemy as the Taliban and that we knew how to get rid of them by conducting clear operations, holding it, and the government would come in and build. And it actually turned out that in many cases the government was, or a government was the actual problem. And then there were all these categories in between the that the campaign plan didn't really consider that well, that we're interfering, such as the drug cartels, right. factional rivalries within the security forces, things like that. Right. So that's a very right. important point. Um, but uh, so but on, on, just to follow up on that and to, to get us back specifically on this issue of counterinsurgency, and I, I'm just going to make a, sort of a last-ditch defense of <laughs> the issue because, uh, of course, these days it's more fashionable to, to just rally against it. But at, at its best... I would submit that counterinsurgency doctrine, or perhaps more specifically the scholarship, points you in the direction of trying to understand those intervening variables, whether it's crime networks, whether it's you know black market um, uh, sources of uh, uh, informal informal networks uh, to do with uh, wealth and, uh, spread and flows and uh, all those things. I mean. In comparison with the sort of traditional military thinking on war, which is very much force on force, and if you hit the targets, then you sort of won. I think that counterinsurgency doctrine tries to ask questions to lead people in the direction of asking those right questions. Now, obviously, there are interpretations that are far more simplistic and narrow-minded, and that sort of pretend that if you just read FM 3-24, then you can solve any problem. But I think one of the great contributions of COIN that we need to take with us is really this embrace of complexity and understanding that things are very difficult. Things are operating at political, economic, and socially very complex levels. And, and you have to sort of understand your air of operations in that uh, context before you start sort of, you know, um, moving things around. Uh, that to me is, I guess, why I've written some things that are very supportive of counterinsurgency because I see it as a helpful reaction to a more apolitical, a more militarily decisive conception of war and warfare that I find simply bogus. All right. And uh, what was, just real quick, this El Salvador paper, since it's been referenced, what, so the listeners understand, what was this, give us a snapshot of that case. Yeah, there. I mean, so, so um, El Salvador, the, the model, I guess, El Salvador model is something that people talk a lot about uh, in terms of 
how do we do more with less? How do we send 55 advices, if that's, you know, numbers at all accurate? Tell, tell them what happened in El Salvador. Assuming, right, so, you know. so what you had in the 1980s during the El Salvadoran Civil War is an effort to uh, prevent another Nicaragua, essentially. So what the Reagan administration decided to do was to radically increase uh, levels of counterinsurgency assistance to the uh, government so as to fight off or fend off the mounting challenge by the FMLN, the local guerrilla group or coalition thereof. And... Um, what you had was a 10-year period of counterinsurgency advice and assistance that I guess today would call the indirect approach to counterinsurgency. So there were never really any U.S. troops engaged in you know, uh, combat or direct provision of security like we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, many of the things that happened in El Salvador are sort of hush-hush, and some of the restrictions, congressional and otherwise, were not always adhered to, but that's sort of it in, in a nutshell. Now, the reason people talk about an El Salvador model is because after these 10 years towards late 1980s, what you had was the slow, gradual, one could say, defeat of FMLN and the reconciliation of the two parties through various peace agreements, leading to sustained peace following uh, the accord signed in 1992. So in comparison to Iraq and Afghanistan, El Salvador sort of comes off looking like a cheaper, lighter footprint, lower risk, alternative to direct coin, which is why in this financially fraught era, it is being increasingly embraced as a way to do things in the future. That whole narrative, uh, which you'll see very often, I mean, the idea of small being beautiful and we can only do things indirectly, I think is mostly correct, but it has one serious drawback, which is, well, two serious drawbacks. Let's see if I can enumerate them in that way. One, that um, counterinsurgency advice and assistance, while essential in El Salvador, was not in itself sufficient. There had to be many other factors that were completely extraneous uh, to what we or the U.S. was doing to actually cement the result that we remember the campaign for. And this gets back to the point that you were making, Doug. Um, and secondly, of course, it's difficult to do things indirectly in Iraq in 03 after the invasion, for example, or in Baghdad in 01 or even 09 for that matter. If you don't have a, a functioning, functioning, albeit somewhat dysfunctional government to work through, there is an interim period when you do have to be able to do things directly. And we shouldn't comfort us with a false promise of always having this sort of uh, local proxy that we can uh, work through. All right. And Doug, why don't you... Well, if I, if I were to sum up David's article in just two sentences, since I'm not the author, I can do this a little easier, I think. It would be something like, you know, memo, you know, for all those who think 55, you know, advisors solved El Salvador, you did notice the Cold War ended? Right. Um, there are other things going on, and there are other, you know, there, there are other trends... Be they, again, be they local, very micro, be they, you know, geopolitical, ultra macro in the case of the collapse of the Soviet Union that are driving events on the ground and complicate our nice, neat narrative about, well, America did this, therefore this emerged. Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly have this, you know, this narrative about Iraq, you know, summed in, in a body of work, most of which, you know, support each other, that says something along the lines of, you know, America, the United, the United States intervention in Iraq stumbled around for three and a half years until, you know, we had a conference at Fort Leavenworth and we wrote a counterinsurgency manual and then General Petraeus shows up in Iraq, implements the manual, and miraculously within six months, things get better. Um... And I just, I just find this. Well, there's certainly someone that was there during truth. that time period. I was, I was, I was there during this time period. Why don't you tell me what you were up to? I was the uh, chief of plans for MMDB, so essentially the chief strategist for the division that was controlling Baghdad. So we were the headquarters right below General Odierno's um, MNCI out of three corps, and then below first General Casey, and then General Petraeus. At MNFI, and it's it was simply much much more complicated than that. Um, I think I told you I uh, I brought with me um, Isaiah Berlin's Hedgehog and the Fox, and he quotes in here uh, a uh, a piece from Tolstoy, who was um, perhaps making fun of uh, the average school histories that were talking about the French Revolution. About halfway through, he says, you know, by the end of the 18th century. 
they're gathered in Paris. They're gathered in Paris, two dozen or so persons who started saying that all men were free and equal. Because of this, in the whole of France, people started to slaughter and drown each other. <laughs> now, we Great could line. we could write a very similar version about the common narrative of what happened um, in 2006 and 2007. You know, in 2006 at Fort Leavenworth, there were gathered 30 people who talked about human terrain and weapons that don't shoot, um, and therefore the Iraqi people decided to give peace a chance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just much too simple a narrative that ignores, again, everything that's going on with the Iraqis, you know, with the Americans who happened to be in Iraq at the time and you know, were kind of oblivious to everything that was happening at Fort Leavenworth and learning their own hard-learned lessons on their own. Um, and then what happened as General Petraeus did come into 2007, and not that he didn't generate a lot of energy um, and somewhat change the dynamic, but uh, it, it's not like he caused everything that happened. See, one of the reasons why I keep citing your, your report, uh, Doug, uh, I think is a... It's a New America report that John produced a few years ago. What was the title? Uh, countering the New Orthodoxy. Yeah, that's um, it. the yeah. Iraq or something like that. Yeah, you'll find it in my footnotes of any of the things I plugged previously. So just look at my stuff first. And well, I'm sure I'll link it. <laughs> yeah, we'll link it. Uh, one of the things I like about it so much is that it's very nuanced. It's very measured, and it seeks to sort of represent the complexity of things as they happen on the ground. But I think, unfortunately, most of the participants in the conversation on counterinsurgency are not, well, maybe I'm sure they are capable of such a nuance, because I don't want to insult their intelligence. But certainly, when they keep writing about it, you get a much more uh, this or that sort of polarization. And, and I don't know what that amounts to, or maybe it's too close. Give to me an these. example. Well... Uh, so, not a person, but just like an <laughs> like anecdote or a narrative or I, something. I, I'm struck, looking at the academic literature criticizing counterinsurgency, at what people say about coin proponents. Now, I think I might be, or might have been, or might still be a coin proponent. It kind of depends what you think of it and what the alternative is. But when you read things like, counterinsurgency proponents divorce politics from war, or do not believe in the Clausewitzian idea that War is a continuation of uh, political uh, politics, by the means. Or um, counterinsurgency proponents believe that Petraeus saved the day and that nothing happened before he arrived in Baghdad in um, February or March 2007. Or counterinsurgency proponents believe that if you only know the principles of counterinsurgency, you can go into any country. And in fact, you should go into any country uh, and, and sort of you know um, make the world safe for democracy. All of these claims I've, I've come across uh, directly and, and, and what's now a mounting body of scholarship criticizing counterinsurgency. And I think it's almost a little bit like shooting fish. I mean, who are these counterinsurgency proponents who say these things? I've, I've certainly never come across any call to uh, foreign policy recklessness or, or, or you know... This well, it's, it's, also, it's also, I think, does a disservice to Clausewitz. And Chris Mewitt might just be about to like have an aneurysm when he hears me say this, but... Uh, I'll blame it on Thomas Ridd, who first, who first told me this sort of joke, is that Clausewitz is the guy that wrote a book about how war is an extension of politics and then didn't write about politics at all. Yeah. Um, really? And, of course, that wasn't his intent, uh, and that wasn't the message that he was trying to communicate or that he did communicate, but I do feel like a lot of modern-day critics of counterinsurgency really um, prefer a vision of warfare where they can just say, all right, this is an extension of politics. You've set the policy. Now right. politics go away while we destroy the enemy's formations right. and then come back afterwards. Yeah. And that's just not, in my opinion, um, in my experience, how it works. Um, yeah, I think part of the issue is that when counterinsurgency really came into its own, there was this talk of people who got it and people who didn't get it. And the notion of someone getting counterinsurgency is I think. not only too clickish, but also a little too arrogant. Because, not, not to say that it's people like Zen Riddle that we're never going to understand, but certainly getting it. And also, I, I squirm that anyone says that I'm a counterinsurgency expert because it really does presume that you're able to sort of apply these premises in situations that are so difficult to understand that really require a level of humility or a level of fantastic expertise. Uh, I guess neither of which I have. But you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's just uh, you know, it's not that easy. So there was an element of arrogance and I, I can understand the backlash, but maybe it's time to call it quits now. I feel like the pendulum needs to go back towards so somewhere in the center position. 
I think you know, David really hit on something, just you know, how hard this is, both intellectually and even, I would say, morally. You know, we, we tend to like, put this big hand wave over, well, you know, the, the Anbar awakening happened, and the, you know, the Sunnis turned, and therefore the whole war turned, and you know, everything was, was hunky-dory after that. Yeah, that was a very, very difficult period. You know, lots of people like to romanticize the, the Anbar awakening. These were not very nice people. You know, the, 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 the Sawa, the Sons of Iraq, had previously been known as the 1920 Revolutionary Brigade and the Jaish Muhammad and the Jaish Islami. These were hardcore Islamists, not Al-Qaeda, but Islamist nationalists who had been killing Americans and Shia for the last three and a half years. You know, an opportunity presented where these, again, not very nice people decided um, through a, because of a whole host of reasons, maybe all of which we won't know, that it was in their interest to switch sides, and they did. That was a very hard decision for a lot of Americans, um, the, particularly the closer you were to it. You know, the if you're at MNFI and you can just do a big hand wave and say, mm -hmm. oh yeah, these groups we're going to bring in, that's, that's all fine and good. If you're at brigade level and actually know who these people are and know you've, you've been listening to their cell phones and you know that they've been directing squads that have been killing and ex even executing in cold blood your soldiers for the last six or nine months or you know, in the previous unit before that, this is really hard stuff to wrap your arms around. And are you willing to do this? Does this make sense? Um, can you continue to get your soldiers to to fight after this? These are really, really hard questions. Um, and to be fair, I think that's the, and I think that's that's the point. Is counterinsurgency is is dirty, and I think a little more morally ambiguous, certainly than, than a war. Not to, not to say there's not moral ambiguity in a more conventional war, but it it comes to the surface a lot quicker, I think. And I, I think this touches on two points I'd like to make. One is that. When we talk about, there is a narrative that Petraeus came in and saved the day. Uh, I do think he applied principles more broadly than they had been before and played a crucial role. I think we could all agree mostly to that. Um, but I also think important to understand politically what was going on in America at the time is that the American people were entirely disillusioned by what was happening in Iraq and needed a hero. Uh, very much so. And I think Petraeus filled that role to the, American, to the benefit of the American people. Now, historian, the job of the historian, of course, is to go back and look at what actually happened and try to disentangle themselves from that sentiment. Uh, I still think they'll find that Petraeus played a crucial role, yeah, but one I that's think, overstated. Perhaps. I think looking at the domestic politics at the time, I mean, things were not stacked up very nicely in Petraeus' favor. I mean, he did not, he did not emerge onto the scene as the hero, except perhaps you know, within the confines of, you know, that conference at Fort Leavenworth or within a small, what I've called, counterinsurgency community. But whether it's Congress or, or whether it's the American people, most people were, you know, very reluctant to send more troops. And by all rights, they should be, because what difference is another, what, 25,000 U.S. troops going to make? It's like, a, you know, John Stewart, I believe, uh, uh, joked at the time that, you know, this is not a surge, this is a tip. <laughs> this is a small incremental change in the total force numbers. What difference is going to make? And I have to say, I was of the same, when I heard Bush make the speech in January, you know, I, I was of the same opinion. And it's someone that was, that had finished or was finishing his, his PhD? Yeah, time. I was, uh, yeah, just finishing off writing my PhD and, and you know, it was on, this on, subject, on the yeah. U.S. counterinsurgency effort. So, you know, don't pick a PhD topic on something that's still going on whilst you're writing it. That's my yeah. advice to all the young listeners. You pulled bit. it off, yeah. but it's generally not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, generally not a good idea. Um, but the wild card, of course, um, which, you know, you can debate to what degree it had been anticipated, was, um, you know, the Ambar awakening and the Sons of Iraq, and I guess there's other factors involved, like we were talking previously about, um, you know, the, the, this argument that the uh, war had itself reach a certain culmination point, or was approaching a culmination point. Um, so, uh, where am I going with all this? Um, the uh, domestic opinion, I think, was very much against Petraeus at the time. And I think that one, in, in assessing his legacy, it's important to note the continuity, because nothing is quite as simple as a narrative, so we like to spin from these uh, moments in time. But it's also important, I think, to note the discontinuity. His role in elevating certain operational practices to a strategic level and incorporating them into a campaign plan, I think, contributed to the 
consolidation and extension of trends that had started in 2006, but that culminated with the, you know, later that year, with a fairly radical decrease in overall casualties from around, you know, two, two, two or three thousand per month, I think, throughout the first seven months of or eight months of 2007, to around you know seven or fifty onwards from then on, and that that's that's saying something, I think. I think you hit on an important point. The I mean, I'm on the record as saying that I don't think the, the surge of troops was as important as it was made out to be, other than as a signal. You know, each of those brigades only sent about 800, 850 trigger pullers onto the streets. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah, know, I five think brigades. It's important. Can you, I want you to elaborate on that because I think this is what people without experience with the military, without military experience, don't understand is the tooth sure. to tail so, ratio. So you send, a, you send a brigade of, you know, 3,500 ish people. But that brigade only has three battalions. Actually, one of those is undersized. And in a battalion, there's 27 rifle squads, each of which has nine guys, which allows you to put about 250 people on the street. So 500 in the two large battalions, maybe another 150 from the medium-sized battalion. If you grab your artillery battalion and tell them, don't worry about shooting artillery, we're just going to put you on the street as infantrymen. That gets you another 150, maybe, so you've got somewhere between 700 and 900 guys carrying rifles on the streets out of each of these It's really brigades. a 3 to 1 or 4 to 1 tail yeah, to 2. Yeah, 5 to 1, or, or, or yeah, at yeah. least. So I mean, I'm, I've, I've said many times, I think in the big scheme of things, had you sent only two brigades instead of five, and had you put, say, a General Dempsey or a General Corelli, both of whom were there and available and had good war records, could have gone instead of Petraeus, at the macro level, the outcome would not have changed. What I think Petraeus brought, however, was a ability to work with the very limited domestic political capital and domestic time that was available. You know, if, if casualties weren't down in Baghdad by the time he testified again in August, and for that matter, I think, or was it September? September, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, and, and even, I think, getting that push back to September was a tribute to Petraeus's political skills. Yeah. Which was involved in his courting of the think tanks, his courting of the media, his ability to understand that... We'll the talk about full-spectrum operations. It really was yeah. full-spectrum. And his ability to do that, um, as a singular talent able to, to work that side of a counterinsurgency campaign does make him singular. And while a Dempsey or a Corelli would have helped accelerate the natural decline of violence in Baghdad, it probably wouldn't have happened by September. And we can only speculate what that would have meant for American involvement. That's a really good point. Uh, and we, you know, that's a, that's a really good point. And at that, I think it's a good break point for us to discuss what we're all drinking. Uh, so we're not at the Jefferson today. We love the Jefferson. They're very good to us, and we highly recommend you get a drink there. But uh, today, uh, Doug and Dave actually broke into the evening with uh, with a couple martinis, but now we're all drinking... A couple being one each. One each. <laughs> one each. Yeah, that's an important point. Now we're drinking a good small batch uh, bourbon called Noah's Mill uh, that was recommended to me by Schneider's actually, which is a great liquor store in DC. If you ever, if you live in DC or if you visit DC, it's, it's in my opinion, the best liquor store in town. Um, it was recommended to me and I have to say it's very, very good. It is very good. Small batch usually means, you know, small batch is a bit of a deceptive term term because in practice it can mean they're mixing a lot of different barrels, like up to a couple hundred, but this is actually, I think less than 20, uh, the youngest, bourbon in here being 15 years old so uh real a lot of flavor in this one that's no, great it's really really good what do you guys think of it uh, well i already said it's great twice so i think you got my opinion already we're not being paid by noah's mill by the way i wouldn't no, mind no it. no no i don't object to it whatsoever but you can work endorsed. on that yeah, yeah. but uh so noah's bill right a smoky check, ball while still being smooth yeah. yeah 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 a lot in there so now that we got that out of the way um I want to talk about a book that just came out uh, early this year called The New Counterinsurgency Era and Critical Perspective. And uh, it's a book that all of us were involved in in different ways. Uh, it's edited by Celeste Ward, uh, Venter, and uh, Dave Martin-Jones, and M.L.R. Smith. Uh, 
Mike MLR Smith is someone I know really well from Kings, uh, who's been a real important influence on me actually. And so they all put together this workshop in Austin a little while back. Uh, and I have to say, if you're going to throw a workshop, throw it in Austin because it's a pretty awesome town. We all had a great time. Um, but they basically got 30 of some of the more interesting. Uh, I hate the word expert, so I'm not going to use it, but sort of people studying and pre stu scholars and practitioners of counterinsurgency who, who were willing to take a sort of critical view. And you know, you didn't have any everyone that disagreed. You know, you had Doug, you had John Noggle in the room, you had John Gentile in the room. Uh, so you certainly had people from very different perspectives. And you even had little fish like me in the room. Dave, David unfortunately couldn't make it. And my daughter was being born, yes. I think. You know, he was busy at the same time. Dealing with the results of yeah. procreation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's, he was excused. How is Mags, by the way? She's wonderful. Named Magdalena, but Mags... Is I'm trying to make Ryan's. Mags stick. Yeah. I have been since she was born. No, she's uh, but uh, no, it's, a, it's actually a really great accomplishment. Uh, it brings together a lot of really interesting essays that deal with uh, sort of different aspects of coin and even things you wouldn't traditionally think about as coin or people that didn't think about their problem set as coin. So my friend John Bew writes a really interesting um, essay on Northern Irish counterinsurgency in Northern Ireland. Uh, we have Jeff Michaels, Colin Jackson, Bill Rosenau, who unfortunately couldn't make it because he is actually struggling with uh, a very tough burden of skiing in Colorado right now. As, as regular listeners of our podcast know, he's usually the one drinking a Plymouth Gin Martini. Uh, Doug Porch, Steve Biddle, Bing West. Uh, Bing West, in the middle of the conference, had to ask me who the crazy guy was on that show. This was Charlie Sheen at the time. You have to transport yourself a couple years back. And then use Charlie Sheen in his remarks. Um, that's my big claim to fame, is that Bing West asked me who Charlie Sheen was. But it, it's a really great book with a lot of different perspectives. Uh, it's published... Who's it published by? Paul Gray McMillan. I really think you should all check it out. I also wrote an essay in there uh, based on a project I did in Afghanistan when I was working uh, for the Army as a member of a human train team. And we did a really great project in a place called Babaji uh, where we looked at a very successful case of company-level counterinsurgency operations and uh, sort of tested the different hypotheses of what was working. Is it hearts and minds, uh, you know, as opposed to the sort of touchy-feely interpretation of what hearts and minds means, which is not how it was intended. Uh, was it strict control of the population and, and uh, killing the enemy aggressively, like uh, people like Will Thowen over at Infinity Journal have argued, or was it something else? Was it perceptions of control of territory? And that's where I came down, as was perceptions of control. Uh, Doug was at this conference, actually gave some of the closing remarks, if I remember correctly. And, uh, no, it was really interesting. And I just want, wanted to reflect on the book a little bit. I mean, FM324 is a book that has a few dents in it and a few scars. And it's being rewritten. And it has been since, for years now. Years now. Apparently it's been a contentious pro process that I was only peripherally involved in. Um, yeah. But how do you think it holds up to the test of history? Uh, looking back at the way Iraq stands now and how where Afghanistan stands now. And is it fair to pin the success of either campaigns on a doctrinal field manual? I'd say um, not so bad and no. That is to say, FM3-24 had many issues. It obviously was written for Iraq, and I think that's entirely um, justifiable at the time. I mean, I, you know, I almost think it would be irresponsible to have spent another year writing a counterinsurgency manual that also made space for, well, what if we were in a different situation altogether? I mean, you know, this is not a thesis work. This is, you know, let's try to get some principles. Let's try to educate people about what counterinsurgency is. And I, I think that it, you know, it, it did what it needed to do at the time. And that's not to say that FM3-24 would work what... what <laughs> Okay, and the martinis are starting to affect me. Um, he's only had one martini, so not only is he too, is he too tipsy to remember how many he's had, but... Well, Ryan, we're also in Ryan's uh, cozy little living room, and he hasn't provided any snacks, so there's still an empty <laughs> stomach. So maybe we should have gone to the Jefferson after all. Anyway, um, that's not to say that FM3-24 was what um, was implemented with the surge, but I think that, you know, as far as doctrine goes, it was helpful in changing people's, not just in the military, by the way, people's perceptions of, of what 
might be expected. The, the other, what I will continue with is, does it need to be rewritten? And I think the key point here is, uh, yeah, I think we should always be in the process of, of, of um, evolving and developing a counterinsurgency doctrine, but uh, at the same time, I don't think the doctrine is itself the issue. I mean, we, you know, we can look is at. Is it fair to pin the success of the campaign on a field? Maybe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and I think that ties in quite nicely to what I was uh, moving on to, which is that the doctrine in itself is not the issue. The issue is really the strategy, and of course the uh, translation of that strategy into campaign plan, and the translation of that campaign plan into and so on and so forth. Uh, you can't really get a successful campaign out of a field manual. I mean, it, it, I think, it, uh, as I've said many times before, it, it might get you to understand the questions you need to ask, but it's certainly not going to provide you with the answers. Uh, so in that sense, you know, FM 3-24, I find it particularly egregious when people say, oh, well, you know, David Petraeus went to uh, Iraq uh, and he implemented 3-24 and it didn't work, or counter-insurgency people think that that's what happened. I, that That's completely irrelevant. I mean, 3-24 is, is just sort of an information operation at the end of the day. It wasn't the basis of the campaign plan. It wasn't the strategy that was implemented. And, and to, to sort of understand Iraq through that lens is just a massive distraction. Doug, Doug is gesticulating, so I assume he has something to say. Before you answer, I want to ask you, had any drafts, or had you read any drafts of FM 3-24 uh, while you were doing your job as the planner, as the five in, uh, in I'd Iraq. seen drafts of 324, but I think their impact was pretty minimal. If I could grab one sentence from Dave, it would be 324 was ultimately an information operation, or words to that effect. And I think that's that's pretty much right. I remember in the aftermath of, you know, a year or so later, maybe two years later, I grabbed one of the guys who'd been one of my planners in 2006 and 2007, and I grabbed him and I said, hey, D- Dave, his name's also Dave, I'm like, did, did we use 324 at all? And he's like, yes, don't you remember? We listed all the tenets of 324 and we checked how many of them we were violating <laughs> as we did the Baghdad security plan. And um, Tell us more about the Baghdad security plan. Um, it came in a hurry. We had had a, some very different, there were, I tell people, In my mind, the Baghdad security plan started before I left Texas. I went to Baghdad in August of 2006 on a reconnaissance with General Joe Phil, um, who had been sick and not able to go on one of the normal leaders' recons. So got permission to get a special dispensation to go to Baghdad. And he went with his three baggage handlers, all of whom were great guys. It just happened to be signed as his aide, his SGS, his XO. who took care of him and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of how things were going to work for him. And I went with him as his planner. And he was very, very quiet the whole time we were there. And this is, I mean, this is August of 2006. Things are ugly. Very, very ugly. So we came back, and he said almost nothing to me. Um, and uh, about a week, maybe ten days after we got back, I was sitting in my vault, you know, the plan's vault in the middle of the place that's, you know, Secure and quiet and locked down. And he walked in. General, you know, he'd never done that before. And he came up to me, and I'll never forget that. He said, Doug, I don't know what we're going to do when we get to Baghdad. Hmm. I do know that we're not going to keep doing what they're doing because it's not working. And he essentially gave me a license to hunt at that point. You know, I don't know what to do, but find something that's going to work. And so we had... A lot of options that were out there. You know, there were everything from totally give up trying to hold terrain and mass all our troops as advisors to the Iraqi security forces. Um, There was a plan that essentially had us abandoning Baghdad and just going and sealing it off and letting what happened in Baghdad happen in Baghdad, but seal it off from outside influences. And we had a version that looked kind of sort of like what eventually happened we, had, we never envisioned that more troops would come, but we had a vision of doing kind of population-centric, getting out there and doing what we're going to do. Uh, I mean, 324 has very, very little to do with this. For that matter, General Petraeus, much as I admire him, has very, very little to do this. As I tell people all the time, the guy who told me to build joint security stations, which were, you know, small outposts with a combination of American troops and Iraqi soldiers and Iraqi police 
to do this you know, population-centric counterinsurgency. The guy who told me to do this was George Casey, who gets a, a bad rap in most of the stories. But in August of, or December, rather, of 2006, was the guy who was really pushing us to do this. You know, when people ask me, how did this come about? Oh, it must have been, you know, FM 324. You know, that's not the case at all. We had three brigade commanders who were in Baghdad at the time. That's all the time. Was were the guys I was watching. Jeff Bannister, who's uh, now a major general, I believe, probably about to take a division, was the east side of Baghdad brigade commander. He had all, the entire east side at the time, including Sadr City. You know, when the surge troops came, that would shrink. But at the time, he owned the entire east side of Baghdad. And he was the most forward-leaning guy on partnering with the Iraqi security forces and figuring out how to do that. And so we pulled everything that he was doing and brought that into the divisional plan and pushed that out. Um, Mike Kershaw, who retired as a colonel, but a great man, was in the far south of Baghdad, down in the Fias, in what eventually became the, uh, you know, the, the Baghdad belts in the south. Um, he was doing kind of classical search and attack, setting up security stations, patrolling around them, clearing them, and then setting up a new station on the far end of what he'd cleared and continuing to move out. Um, was doing incredible work there. And uh, J.B. Burton, now I think also a two-star, commanding a, uh, I want to say a, a uh, weapons of mass destruction response unit or something like that. Um, really, really was the first guy to get, I think, that we were in the middle of a Sunni-Shia civil war and that a big piece of what we needed to be doing was almost a peacemaking operation, interposing ourselves between these ethno-sectarian sides. Um, those three guys, combined with, you know, articles that were floating around, what General Corelli had written uh, in Military Review, um, Dave Kilcullen's however many articles, I can never remember how many it is, um, some other pieces, many of, had, many of which had been written by First Cav people. We were kind of a community of practice. We understood each other. Mm -hmm. We'd done 2004 Baghdad together. Most of us were back there together. That's how we moved forward on the Baghdad security plan. And, and what had happened at Fort Leavenworth, at least in my mind, had very little effect on, on what we were doing in December of 2006. I think that not only was that really interesting and something that I hadn't heard before, uh, as many times as, as we've gone out drinking together. But um, it, it illustrates a really important point in how institutions and military organizations learn and adapt, in my opinion. Uh, and I'd be I'm going to ask Frank Hoffman, a contributing editor at War on the Rocks, who's doing his doctorate on innovation and adaptation, to comment on this later. But is that a lot of how institutions learn come from a lot of different people having these conversations together in theater and on their way to theater, and as things are happening. And that's right. common sense. And as things go around, and, and, you know, I'll use one of the, you know, John Gentile was, you know, the battalion commander in Amaria mm -hmm. in West Baghdad in 2006, just prior to my getting there. Um, I think he was still commanding when I first arrived. He and I never saw each other in theater. We never met. John was the first guy to realize that you needed to put a barrier around Automia to keep things out. Now, the barrier that John put around Automia was totally inadequate. He did it with what we called um, Jersey barriers, which were kind of like the, the three-foot... And I've, I've told John this to his face, so this is not yeah, news yeah. to him. Um, you know, they're the three-foot-high version that you can essentially hop over, the ones that you like, see at demonstrations or, you know, around buildings here. Um, and he had them spaced, you know, so there were like two feet in between them, and you could walk in between them. That wasn't sufficient. By the time we finished walling Atomia, we had ten-foot-high barriers around it, and they were flush against each other, so there was no space in between them. So the only way that you could get through was through one of the gates, which were rigorously controlled. That's an important learning process. Was but, he, but, but he really, he started the process. He right. was the guy who realized that Amaria had to be walled off. Was his wall sufficient? No, it wasn't. But it was a great first step. That spread across real, all of Baghdad. That, that spurred everything. Right. I don't know if he was the first guy to put up a wall in Baghdad, but he was the first guy to put a wall around Amaria. And it was an important step that then his successors built on and made more functional. And I know I'm dominating the company. You know, the same thing can be said of these, the much maligned, you know, operation together forward operations that 
General Corelli's fifth corps and fourth ID under J.D. Thurman did in, I want to say, August and October of 2006. I might have the months a little bit off. Those operations were failures. There's no other way to put it. They totally failed in what they set out to do, going and clearing insurgents out and getting Iraqi security forces to hold behind them. They failed. That's curious because we're together and we're going forward. Yeah, so, you would think. Um, you know, it, it, mm. if, if only the names actually yeah. worked. <laughs> so, so, but, but the, the operations that we did as First Cab in January, February, April of 2007 were based on those operations and we learned the lessons from those operations. And I don't think we would have been as successful had we not had these operations, which were pointed in the right direction, but didn't just just didn't quite get there. And I think that's an important point: is that you have these institutions, a lot of interactions going on, a lot of iterations of different efforts, and so we like stories, and we like stories to have protagonists and main characters. Not to say there aren't main characters that dominate, but you're really talking about a lot of people interacting, working together, trying things to move things forward. Um, we need to finish in about a minute, but I just want to get brief reactions from each of you. Uh, or whatever else you want to say. Uh, so now we're we're not talking about coin, where there's a much less American, a much smaller American appetite for military interventions, large scale counterinsurgency, large footprint, whatever you want to call it. The sort of buzzword now is building partnership capacity. I want you to do about thirty seconds on that. I'm going to start with Dave. Okay. Well, building partnership capacity, uh, I see it as it's a cliche, of course, at this point, but I see it as one of the most important elements uh, for a superpower or a hegemon that's trying to sustain its influence, not just because we're out of money, but because it's the only way you can do it. You can't do things yourself, and I think that's been one of the most stark lessons of the last 10-15 years. But the problem is that, unfortunately, the one remaining superpower does not necessarily know much, or sometimes doesn't even care much about the rest of the world. So we need to institutionalize efforts to do this much better. Good. On to you, Doug. We live in a world where our interests are real, but limited. You know, we're very concerned about the Ukraine, or not the Ukraine, about Ukraine right now. I have the same bad habit as everybody else. About Ukraine right now. But the fact is, if Ukraine is absorbed tomorrow by Russia, that affects people in this town and New York and Topeka and Colorado Springs. How? Not at all. Now, that's not to say it's a good thing, and it's not to say that we don't want it to happen, but it doesn't impact the United States very much. Our interests are real, but limited. So we're going to have to get used to the idea that other people are going to have to carry this. What we as the hegemon need to do is ensure that they're equipped to, to bring this about. Now, we can equip them, but we can't give them the will. But because they're in the neighborhood and because these interests are much more important to them than they are to us, the, the fate of Ukraine matters not very much to us. It matters a lot to the Georgians, to the Baltics, to the Poles. Uh, it matters a whole lot. So those people might be very, very interested in picking up and developing the capacity to react to this type of contingency. And it's a good way to take advantage of that dynamic, projecting American preferences while looking at for our allies' interests, but in ways that are of lower cost to us. Absolutely. And that then puts us in a, a different position. Into, we're, we're then the status quo power trying to reinforce you know, our traditional allies. Whereas you know, if the Russians decide this weekend to do a dash to the western border of Ukraine, they're going to be the ones dealing with, a with an insurgency and having to develop their counterinsurgency skills, and that will not be our problem. Yep. All right, it's a good place to end. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you all for reading more on the rocks.